Matthew chapter 2, we're going to read uh, 13 to 20, 13 to 23, Herod's slaughter of the innocents, the little, the little boys in, in and around Bethlehem, and a, a very rich section of scripture, and we'll look at the prophecy, the fulfillment of prophecy, very interesting. Beginning at verse 13. Now when he had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken through the Lord uh, through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he set forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all the districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. And that's the time the star appeared. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet, by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. By the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. And we're going to get at least through, uh, today we'll just get through 13 to 18. In this section, uh, the section that records uh, the flight into Egypt, the massacre of the innocent, the innocents, and the return to Nazareth is unique to Matthew's gospel and is likely included in his account because it continues the themes of the humiliation of Jesus, God's providential and, and as well as supernatural protection of the child, you know, speaking divine revelation and the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, and that's emphasized. The passage considers three significant historical events, each of which is followed with a quotation showing the fulfillment of prophecy. Okay, today we'll get to two of them. Lord willing, next week we'll get to the final one. Number one, the special revelation to Joseph and his family's flight to Egypt, Hosea 11.1. That's the prophecy fulfilled. Number two, the slaughter of the little boys in Bethlehem. That's the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31.15. We're going to look at that quite a bit. And then number three, which we'll, Lord willing we'll look at next week, the return to Israel and settlement in Nazareth in Galilee, Isaiah 11.1. 1. Matthew is concerned not only to present Jesus as the suffering servant, but also to show his Jewish readers that he perfectly fulfills the prophecies. Okay, this is not some new religion. This is, this is uniquely a fulfillment of the Old Testament. Matthew's account has typological and theological overtones. The evil tyrant Herod murders the, 
the infants in Bethlehem, while Pharaoh sought to kill all the Hebrew male infants. The infant Moses escapes to live and fulfill his ministry of deliverance, as does the little child Jesus. So there's little overtones here comparing Jesus is the greater Moses. Yahweh called Israel out of Egypt to land of promise, and also called his son out of Egypt. Moses had to come out of the wilderness to the people of Israel to deliver them from bondage in Egypt. Jesus returned to redeem his people from the guilt and power of sin. Although the Moses-Christ typology is very subtle, there is enough to show that one far greater than Moses has come. This would be something that Jews who knew their scriptures would pick up on. The typological, eschatological counterpart to the one who saved God's people from bondage in Egypt. As Moses' mission led to the rise of the covenant nation, a kingdom of priest kings, okay, the priest king terminology comes from the Old Testament, it's applied by Peter and others to the New Testament church, Jesus' mission will lead to a worldwide kingdom inclusive of all nations, the greater than Moses is here, far greater than Moses. The unbelieving Jews rejected Christ as the fulfillment of the types and prophecies. And thus early Jewish writers speak of Jesus coming out of Egypt as evidence that he was a magician slash sorcerer. That's, that's in sections of the Talmud. And uh, that's discussed by Origen in his writings. Proof he was a sorcerer according to the Jews. Now, Luke does not discuss any of this material, but simply records the Holy Family going back to Joseph and Mary's town, Nazareth and Galilee, after the mother's purification and the son's dedication. Now, this is seen as a contradiction by liberal and even uh, neo-evangelical scholars, but it only appears to be a contradiction if one accepts the church tradition, which places the Holy Family in Bethlehem for two years after the birth, which uh, we discussed before. There's simply no evidence for that. It's, it's a supposition based on traditions surrounding Christmas. Now let's look at the revelation in flight. Sometime soon after the Magi departed, an angel of the Lord warned Joseph to take the child and his mother into Egypt because Herod will attempt to kill him, the child. God does two things immediately after the visit of the Magi to protect his son. He first contacts the Magi by special revelation in a dream, tells them to go back another way, avoid Herod completely. If Herod had got them and they weren't willing to tell him, he would have been willing to torture them to get the information. That's the kind of person Herod was. This will delay any action on Herod's part and give the family time to flee. Then Joseph is told to take the Holy Child completely out of Israel to make sure the Christ child cannot be found. We have to understand the obsession of, with Herod, and we understand that, you know, dictators, tyrants, have spies, they have informers, etc. Now, Egypt was a Roman province in which Herod had no authority to act at all. Herod could do nothing in Egypt. There was a large Jewish population there, primarily in Alexandria, in which Joseph and his wife could easily settle and fit in culturally. This would be around uh, 200 miles away from Nazareth, 150 miles from Bethlehem. The Jewish areas of Egypt were natural places for Jews to flee and when in trouble with the Roman authorities in Judea. And, of course, that's where Jeremiah will flee. And uh, we're going to talk about Jeremiah 31, but it's very interesting. Uh, 
they're take, they take a bunch of people to Babylon. They kill a bunch of people, take a bunch of people to Babylon. Jeremiah stays and he tries to convince the people to repent. They don't repent and he ends up in Egypt. <clears throat> um, note that the angel does not address Mary but Joseph. the head of the household, who was responsible for his family's safety and security. Okay, who's in charge? Was Mary the mediatrix, the queen of heaven, and Joseph was bowing the knee to Mary? No, Joseph was the leader of the household. The angel appears to the head of the household and speaks to the head of the household. Joseph had the great honor of being the guardian of the holy child and his mother. God honors Joseph as the legal father and also as the foster father of Jesus. <clears throat> as a child, the Savior, according to his human nature, was under his earthly father's parental authority. As truly a man under the law, Jesus was subject to his earthly father's authority within biblical parameters, as was Mary. Mary submitted to her husband. If she didn't, she wasn't a good wife and she was, would have been sinful, which is not who Mary was. In our Lord's state of humiliation, God uses special revelations to elaborate on the meaning and purpose of Christ as well as a way to protect him from danger. You have all these, you know, you have a revelation with Anna, you have a revelation with Simeon, you have a revelation, uh, revelations regarding John the Baptist and so forth. All, all these exalting the Christ. But there's also revelations designed to protect the Christ. He's got to fulfill his mission. But once the commands are, special commands are given, non-supernatural, that is normal methods, are used to protect Jesus. The creator of the universe in his humble state had to flee from a second-rate king. Now remember in the garden, I can call on 12 legions of angels. Christ could have had 200,000 angels. It only takes one angel to kill 200,000 Assyrians. But in his state of humiliation, he has to flee. The angel instructs Joseph not to return to Israel until God tells him to return. Herod's obsession with murdering the child is very strong. The return must await the tyrant's death. And, uh, you know, a minor application here. We, we cannot expect to serve the Lord and have an easy time of it. If you serve the Lord, the devil's going to be after you, and he's going to use humans to go after you. We must cheerfully journey across the desert if we have to, if we have a charge to keep for our God, and we must tarry in banishment if need be, and never venture to come back till the Lord sends us our passports. The glory of Jesus with the worship of the Magi is set immediately in contrast with Herod's persecution and hatred of the child. So with a mediator on earth, in his state of humiliation, we have uh, the Savior's glory and his suffering appear in juxtaposition. Very interesting. Now an obvious application of our passage is that as Christians we should flee persecution when possible to live and fight on for the kingdom another day. Now if you're familiar with early church history, post-apostolic church history, there were a lot of people who sought martyrdom. They were fanatical 
and they refused to flee. They wanted to be killed and be martyred. Uh, that's not being advocated here. The post-apostolic practice of believers deliberately seeking persecution was unscriptural and counterproductive. It's better to live and serve and move on another day. It is lawful and wise to flee from tyrannical persecutors within the providence of God if, when the providence of God opens a way for escape. This observation is especially true if we have a wife and children. It's one thing if you're just a guy out there and you can take risks. But when you have a wife and children, it's your duty, your obligation to protect them. When Paul was persecuted, he would move on to another city, Acts 14.30 and 16.40. As Jesus said, what did Jesus say, Matthew 10.23 to the apostles? When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. Now, if one is working incognito under a godly lesser civil magistrate with a probability of victory, as Calvin would say, then one should stay and operate as an underground force. There have been times in church history when men such as John Knox acted very boldly and somewhat openly at times during great dangers. Such men are called to such a task during extraordinary times of reformation, and we should pray for God to raise up such men as in our day. Uh, let me give you an example. I forgot the name of the town, but he, he, he was going to a town to preach, and he received information that there were people there that were going to kill him. And he believed that God wanted him to preach there anyway. Uh, I know that the guy, I think the guy who was sent to kill him ended up being converted. Um, but John Knox is certainly an unusual case and an amazing case. I don't know if he had a family at that time or not. Probably not. <clears throat> Joseph immediately obeys God's warning and flees during the night. The father of our Lord understood the urgency of the situation and left during the night so that curious neighbors would not ask where he was going or why. They get up the next day, there's nobody there. Where'd he go? We have no idea. If they knew, uh, torture could get that information out. Only the Holy Family knew the destination and Joseph wanted to keep it that way. We see in Joseph's actions that he was a man of faith for his obedience was exemplary. He immediately obeys. The trip from Nazareth to Nazareth or Bethlehem, okay, once about 200 miles, once 150 miles, would be more than a week's journey. It's a long ways. They didn't have cars. It appears that once the angel departed, the Holy Family started to pack. Now keep in mind also that it was customary in the Middle East, which was very hot during the day, except in winter, late fall and early spring, to leave on a long journey hours before sunrise to take advantage of the cool night and early day temperatures. Okay, people would leave three, four, five hours before the sun arose, travel a bunch. When the heat of the day was out, a lot of them would take a siesta. They would, they would not travel when the sun was high in the sky, but we don't know the exact time Christ was born. Since this we have seen is unlikely that Jesus was burned during the winter, the weather could have influenced Joseph's decision to leave while it was still dark. Verse 15 informs us that the family dwelt in Egypt until the death of Herod. The time of the sojourn in Egypt is not specified. We have no idea. Ancient Christian scholars varied the time from two years, Athanasius, to eight years, Baronius. If Jesus was born in oh, 06, 5 or 4 BC, then it would be months or about a year at the very most. Herod died in the spring 
a 4 BC while visiting Jericho. Now, one of the main reasons that Matthew records a stay in Egypt is to point to the Christ's return as a fulfillment of Hosea 11.1. 1. Out of Egypt I have called my son. The phrase, by the Lord through the prophet, verse 15, is designed to emphasize that God the Father calls his son back to the covenant nation. Now here, a lot of times we notice that Luke and Matthew and these people, they'll follow the basic pattern of the, uh, the Greek Septuagint. But here, he does not follow the text of the Greek Septuagint, which says, which says God called his children, plural, but instead is deliberately used what we call a Masoretic text, the Hebrew text, uh, which reads, my son, singular. The passage in Hosea refers to Yahweh calling his covenant people out of Egypt, and thus the translators of the Greek Septuagint made the collective singular, my son, into the plural to make the passage easier to understand. Okay, translating can't be totally literal all the time. No, I think they should have kept it singular, but they made it plural. Matthew, writing under divine inspiration, tells us that the passage has a double fulfillment, and the singular was used because it also prophesied the return of Jesus to Israel from Egypt. Very interesting. What, Jehovah, what Israel's history tip, typified and looked forward to has reached its fulfillment and goal with the coming of the Christ. The deliverance from slavery in Egypt finds its eschatological fulfillment and climax in history with the return of the Messiah who will save not only the Jews from sin and guilt, but also the entire world. The Exodus language in the Old Testament, and I'm just going to, you can look these up later, Isaiah 11, 11, Hosea 2, 15, and 11, 9, Micah 7, 15, etc., is designed to point us to the final, ultimate, spiritual, worldwide salvation achieved by Jesus Christ. There's a lot of typology in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament is constantly pointing us directly to Jesus Christ and his work. We notice that as we see how the New Testament applies prophecy and typology. The Old Exodus typified the everlasting Exodus. The Messiah is not only the leader of the Jews, but as the antitype to Moses and Joshua, is also the savior of true Israel, the multinational church. The kingdom will be taken from the Jewish nation, the Israel that was covenantly unfaithful and given to the church of Christ who is the faithful seed of Israel. Okay, Paul makes that crystal clear, contrary to dispensationalism. Believers in Christ who are regenerated, who have real faith, are the true Israel of God. And what does Jesus call the unbelieving, persecuting Israel? National Israel or Israel according to the flesh? He calls them the synagogue of Satan in Revelation. Does God still have a plan for the ethnic Israel? Yeah, he does. Israel will be saved, as will all nations. Well, we need to be very careful in exegeting Scripture in a historical, grammatical, and theological way so that we do not find types or meanings in the text that are not really there. We can rest assured that any interpretations of the Old Testament passages by inspired New Testament authors are accurate, valid, and without error. The issue of typology in the Old Testament is so rich and varied that we can say that scholars have barely scratched, barely scratched the surface on this issue. And we'll see that when we look at Jeremiah 31 a little bit. God was pointing us to Christ and his work throughout the Old Testament in many different ways, some of which are subtle and highly theological. And here's what the old covenanter, 
David Dixon writes. This is from the 1600s. It should not seem strange to us that the evangelists do apply sundry such speeches of the old prophets under the law and the prophets. End of quote. In fact, the types within the Mosaic law anticipate the gospel and teach us all about vicarious sacrifice, the imputation of sin and guilt and justification, etc. If you take the typology of the Old Testament law on sacrifice, and you take what the New Testament teaches about vicarious sacrifice and the death of Christ, you get a very rich, very doctrine of, of the atonement. And you need the Old Testament to understand the New, and you need the New to understand the Old. They, they both have to be taken together, constantly, especially in our exegesis. And the Levitical priesthood pointed to Jesus as the eternal once-for-all high priest, after, the, of course, after the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews who offered himself on the cross as a sacrifice for sin and is the eternal, omniscient, divine human mediator between believing sinners and a thrice holy God. The Davidic kingship, as well as the leadership of Moses, Joshua, and other righteous kings, served as types of Christ's perfect, eternal kingship. The only true covenant keeper. The only one who perfectly kept the law. Matthew is making it perfectly clear that what Jesus taught and did as well as who he was in his own person, it's not something novel or unanticipated in the sacred scriptures of the true religion. Christ is the focus of the whole Old Testament. And if one denies this, then one cannot be a true Jew covenantally or religiously. And I did a couple sermons, I don't know, three or four sermons, many, many years ago, uh, refuting modern Judaism. And the, ev the, the evidence for Christ, the prophecies, the types, everything pointing to Christ is so overwhelming, it's mind-boggling. And it shows the Bible's truly the word of God, truly inspired by God, truly infallible. Well, let's look now at the wrath of Herod. <clears throat> In verse 16, Herod learns that the wise men did not obey him. And therefore, he comes up with a different plan to kill the Messianic king. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all the districts from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. And that would be, uh, the wise men told him the time that the star appeared. And the assumption is that the, he was born when the star appeared. Tyrannical political leaders are used to being obeyed without question. Consequently, when Herod finally figured out that the wise men had ignored his instructions, he became exceptionally angry. Unworldly, peg, uh, worldly, excuse me, worldly pagan political leaders are very proud and vain. Look at Putin. Look at Hitler. Look at Stalin. They take refusals to obey their ungodly, unwise policies as a personal insult. Biden says the greatest threat to the United States is uh, people who voted for Donald Trump. That's what he says. Not Al Qaeda. You know, not terrorists. Not Russia. Not China but conservative Republicans. I mean, give me a break. In their fury, they shrink, they strike back with hatred. Since the Magi are long gone, a fury is directed to the small children of Bethlehem and the surrounding districts. This behavior is human autonomy or self-law at its very worst. I can do what I want. I'm the king. If I want to kill people that are innocent, so be it. In addition... He is filled with rage because his rival to the throne is still alive. He's a megalomaniac. He's a very paranoid person. 
paranoid with power. It's like Putin, you know, everything, everything rotates around his own power and glory, self-glory. His sinful pride is connected to his lust for power. He will do anything to retain power, even murdering his own family members as well as little infants. That Herod's lust for power and control was obsessive and maniacal is demonstrated from the fact that during his long reign he murdered his wife, Miriam, and his own sons, Alexander and Aristobulus. They were executed in A.D. 6 or 7, only a few years, uh, or a year or so, very near the birth of Jesus. And they were executed simply from, he heard rumors that they were talking about overthrowing him. He heard rumors. He heard gossip, so he had them all executed. Didn't want to take any chances, so he kills his own family members. He could have exiled them. He could have done a number of, he didn't need to kill them. He had another son, Antipater, put to death only five days before his own death. Um, while he was, uh, at the time he was visiting uh, Jericho. And that's discussed by Joseph Antiquities 16, 11, 7, and 17, 7. He was not different from most other heathen rulers at that time who held power through violence, terror, and raw coercion. His great injustices and atrocities were well known, and he was hated by the Jews. I didn't put it here, but there's a, he uh, had problems with the Sanhedrin, so he just had a, had a bunch of them killed. That's the kind of person he was. Very evil man. And here's something despicable. So that there would be widespread mourning at the time of his own death. Herod ordered that a member of every family was to be killed when he died. Now, fortunately, they didn't carry that out. But, uh, I mean, what a sick thing. And that's also recorded in Joseph Antiquities. Since Herod lost the opportunity to kill a specific target, he decides to murder all the male children, two years old and under, in Bethlehem and the surrounding areas. Just in case. It did not matter to him that dozens of little innocent toddlers would be murdered simply to avoid having a possible future, a possible future rival. Jesus is only a couple of years old. You're not even considered a real adult until you're 20. Herod was old and sick. His paranoia is just ridiculous. He is a fitting representative of the political Antichrist throughout history. Such men and women want nothing to do with the Christ of Scripture because they do not want to submit to God's authority. They do not care how many lives they, uh, how many lies they speak or how many innocent men, women, and children they persecute and murder. As long as they get to create their own law and maintain their unjust authority. When the lies and propaganda of the enemies of Christ fail them, they turn immediately to slander, coercion, and even murder. Now, I, was, I didn't get into this in this sermon. I want to talk about abortion a, a little bit, Lord willing, next week. I was going to get to it today, but I ran out of time because they're killing little children. But it, if you listen to the way the Democrats speak about the overturning of Roe versus Wade, it's, just, it's like they worship death. We're not talking about the removal of a wart or a mole or a tumor or a cyst. We're talking about murdering innocent unborn babies. They talk about it like it's a sacrament, like it's sacred. In fact, a Democratic politician actually said that abor abortion rights are sacred. 
So it's just, it's just the comparison between Herod and what's going on today is, is, is very obvious and clear. All rulers in the world who reject Jesus and hate the gospel and the lordship of the risen Christ seek to remove the true religion from civil government and all important covenantal spheres of society. Okay, what have we been hearing lately from, from the president and, uh, and the Democrats? Your children don't belong to you. Well, in a sense, that's true. They belong to God, but they're under our care. But, they don't, but their view is they belong to the state. And it's our job to teach them that uh, gerbils and fisting and homosexual behavior and transgender perversions, which is absolutely sick and perverted, it's, it's our job to indoctrinate them in Satanism. That's their view. And communist, socialists, and Islamic states preaching the gospel or teaching God's law will land one in jail or, in some places, the grave. Okay, in, in Afghanistan and places like that, if they find out you're a Christian, they just they'll cut your head right off. In America, which has Christian roots to an extent, one can speak about Jesus in the Bible all one wants, as long as one keeps it out of the public schools, colleges, the courts, the civil government, and all the lawmaking and law analyzing, the lawmaking and law analyzing process. And remember, what was it Alabama? You can't even have a copy of the Ten Commandments in front of your courthouse. You can't even have a copy of the Ten Commandments sitting outside your courthouse. Men who hate the truth and the light, love lies, and embrace the darkness. Right now in America, the civil government is at war with Jesus Christ and his perfect, holy, righteous law. We must be aware that freedom of religion, and I'm talking about freedom of religion as defined by our Constitution and how it's worked out in our government, we're not talking about freedom of different Christian groups, you know, like Christian denominations. We're talking about freedom for everything, including Satanism, which essentially means that the civil magistrates will treat all religions, including biblical Christianity, as equally neither true or false, and thus as completely irrelevant to culture, law, society, economics, the arts, and the schools, has resulted in freedom from the true religion. You remember that, that lady who was just put on the, not, not the black lady who was put on by the Democrats, but the lady before that, <coughs> the Republican lady, they kept asking her, you're a Roman Catholic. You have beliefs about Christian ethics. How You shouldn't be on the Supreme Court. How dare you? You need to be an atheist and secular like we are. It's just shocking. The United States courts, Congress, and the executive branch is atheistic and thus follows the religion or philosophy of secular humanism. The political elites act as God and create fiat laws that are the very opposite of biblical law. For example, no-fault divorce, the full legalization of homosexual and sodomite right, homosexuality, sodomite marriage, the complete acceptance and advocacy of the transgender perversion, atheistic state schools, and we could go on and on and on, unjust laws. The result is ethical chaos, a great rise in crime, the advancement of arbitrary state power, and increasing hostility to biblical Christianity. Now, Herod was correct in fearing this newborn king, being who he was, the Christ king, because Jesus will spiritually conquer and subdue all earthly kingdoms. Daniel makes that explicit, as other passages do. It was the lordship of Christ as taught in the first century that resulted in the severe persecution of Christians by the Roman state. All he had to do to avoid being executed by the Romans was go up and offer a pinch of 
a pinch of incense, an offering to Caesar, proclaiming him Lord over lords and king over kings, supreme over everyone else. They didn't care whether you worshipped monkeys or bananas or child sacrifice, whatever you did, as long as Caesar was number one. And Christians wouldn't do that because Jesus is number one. For the modern liberals, such as the Democratic Party, Bible-believing, that is real Christianity, the Word of God and the Christians, and real Christians are the great evil that must be suppressed. Christians must reject the myth of neutrality and disciple whole nations, as Jesus has commanded in the Great Commission. If Christians believe in a secular state independent of Christ's authority, which is what most Christians profess today, especially evangelicals, well, even Reformed churches, and thus reject national covenanting with Jesus. And that's the teaching that biblical Christianity and biblical law is the source of law and authority of the state. All you're doing by covenanting with Christ is you're saying, we recognize the Bible as the word of God, the infallible, inspired word of God. We recognize that God's moral law is the standard of ethics and therefore the standard for our laws regarding marriage, regarding murder, regarding crime, etc., and, of course, one must have the establishment principle. And I don't like the way the establishment principle was practiced in the, in, the, in the distant past where people were taxed and churches were given money by the state. That's unbiblical. But basically, the establishment principle, who, what is, your, what is your law and what is your nation founded upon? Is it founded on Christ and the Bible or is it founded on atheism and secular humanism? What is it going to be? There is no neutrality. You can't have it both ways. There could be freedom of different Christian uh, denominations and yet we don't have to have atheists in government and Satanists and lesbians and perverts and fisters. When they have rejected lordship of Christ over every area of life, uh, they don't belong in civil government. They don't belong. They shouldn't have the right to vote. They really do not believe that God has given the risen victorious mediator, I'm talking about Christians here, professing Christians, all authority over heaven and earth. Those are not my words. Those are God's words. Matthew 28, 18 and following. Once again, Matthew informs his readers that this attack and murder of the children was a fulfillment of prophecy. That the scripture was fulfilled, which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. Matthew 2, 17 and 18. The expression then was fulfilled as a common introductory formula for the fulfillment of prophecy. Like the previous prophecy, which we looked at in verse 15, Matthew, writing under divine inspiration, takes a passage with a particular fulfillment in the past, Jeremiah 31, 15, and gives it a secondary fulfillment here. Now, originally, the great weeping noted in the passage occurred in Jeremiah's day. When Nebuzaradan, that's one of the generals, the chief generals of uh, Babylon, after destroying Jerusalem, brought the prisoners captured to Ramah. This happened in uh, 586 B.C. And uh, see Jeremiah 31, 1 and 30, uh, 40, verse 1. Jeremiah was taken there. Jeremiah ended up 
not going. He stayed behind. He didn't go to Babylon. He stayed behind. He tried to convert to get people to repent and uh, ended up fleeing to Egypt, where, according to tradition, he was killed in Egypt. Their fate was decided. There their fate was decided. Some would be slain. Others would be sold as slaves. Others would go into captivity. Little children were often slain, for they were often uh, viewed as unuseful by conquerors. And even as an impediment, especially if young women were to be taken by soldiers for their own use and pleasure. Ramah is in Benjamin's territory near Bethlehem. See Joshua 18.25. So little children could have been slain there because of Herod's orders to cover the surrounding districts. In any case, of course, someplace, there's another Ramah that's north of Jerusalem about, I don't know, six, seven miles. In any case, the great sorrow caused by Herod's murder of these little children was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Now, based on the context, John Gill, and he's the only one I saw that believes this, believes that Jeremiah 31.15 only relates to the slaughter by Herod. He doesn't think it has an Old Testament fulfillment. And he's in the great minority there. He writes, quote, that this prophecy belongs not only not to the Babylonian captivity, but to the times of the Messiah, appears from the whole context, which manifestly speaks of the miraculous conception of Christ, of the blessings of his kingdom to be enjoyed by his people, and of the new covenant to be made with them. End of quote. A number of Old Testament scholars, if you read commentaries on Jeremiah, modern commentaries, apply Jeremiah 31.15 and following to the lament for northern Israel. Because verse 18 says, I have heard distinctly, uh, distinctly Ephraim bemoaning himself. And that was often used for the northern tribes. Rachel is regarded as a poetic symbol for uh, Israel personified weeping for her children slaughtered by the Assyrians. Ramah, however, is near Bethlehem. And no matter how one applies it to the Old Testament Israel, it is applied by the Holy Spirit to Herod's attack on the children in and around Bethlehem. Now, D.A. Carson, a New Testament evangelical scholar, uses the context in Jeremiah, the Babylonian captivity, to apply what happens in Jesus' day as the ultimate fulfilling of the hopes of the Babylonian exiles. And he says this, quote, Matthew has already made the exile a turning point in his thought. 1, 11 to 12. For at that time, the Davidic line was dethroned. The tears of the exiles are now being fulfilled. That is, the tears begun in Jeremiah's day are climaxed and ended by the tears of the mothers of Bethlehem. The heir to David's throne has come. The exile is over. The true son of God has arrived, and he will, be, and he will introduce the new covenant. Matthew 26, 28, promised by Jeremiah. That's very clever, but there's going to be a lot of tears shed when Jerusalem is destroyed in AD 66 to 70. And then here's my favorite one. Uh, the, the favorite view that I found, besides what I wrote earlier, is Matthew Hendrickson. He believes that Jeremiah 31.15 applies to both the north and the south. And he writes this, Figuratively, Rachel is here in Jeremiah 31.15, pictured as being still alive. She is, is as it were, uh, keep in mind, Rachel's buried very close to Ramah, very, very near Ramah. <clears throat> she is watching the wretched multitudes gathered in Ramah. She listens to their weeping until she herself begins to weep. She mourns bitterly because she is being deprived of her children. First Israel goes into exile, Second Kings 17, 5, and 6, and then Judah, Second Chronicles 36, 17, and 20. 
She who was eager to, so eager to have children, give me children or I die, Genesis 30, verse 1, sees how some of them are killed, others are driven away to foreign soil. How bitter are her tears. How loud and continued is her lamentation. A worldly power, first Assyria, then Babylonia has robbed her of what, that which was dearest to her. Nevertheless, there was reason for rejoicing. In fact, the 31st chapter of Jeremiah, from which Matthew quotes these words, is filled with words of consolation. The comfort concerns both Israel and Judah, Jeremiah 31.27 and 31, and see 33.14. That is the entire remnant, 31.7. Jehovah has loved his people with an everlasting love, 31.3. Therefore, he, will, he who has scattered them will also regather them, 31.10. Rachel must therefore refrain from weeping, 31.16. Is not Ephraim his, dar his darling child, 31.20? Will he not make a new covenant with his people, 31.31? Forgiving their iniquity and no longer remembering their sins, 31.34. And of course we know from Hebrews that this is fulfilled in the church, which includes people of the north and people of Judah. The remnant will indeed return, and for what purpose? Merely to rebuild the cities, 31-38? No, but in order to bring forth the branch of righteousness. It is he who will execute justice and righteousness in the land, 33-14 and 15. The parallel drawn by Matthew is very clear. Because of the slaughter of Bethlehem's infants, he pictures Rachel as weeping once more. And for essentially the same reason. These children too are no more. This time the worldly power that destroyed them was not Assyria, or Babylonia, but Edom, as represented by cool, cruel King Herod. Bethlehem's infants of two years and under have been killed. The child of the main, exile, main object of Herod's wrath has been driven into exile. End of quote. Now, I, I think that's an excellent analysis. Um, there's many different views of this passage. It, it's a difficult passage, but that's one of my favorite ones. I think that's one of the better ones. Now, Herod was an Edomite, that is true. But he was not the king of Edom. He, at this time, he was what? He was the king of the Jews. They may not have liked him, but he was the king of the Jews. Perhaps Matthew is showing his readers that the murderers persecuting Assyrians and Babylonians had been replaced by the apostate Jewish nation, which will eventually murder the Messiah and then fanatically persecute his church. In the early persecutions of the church, you read about in the book of Acts, the Jews, when they didn't just outright grab somebody and try to stone them to death, would go to the Romans and get the Romans to kill, the, kill Christians. The Jews were the instigators of the first persecutions of Christians. And that's one of the reasons, of course, the killing of Christ, obviously, but that's one of the reasons that God had them destroyed by Rome, AD, 60, AD 66 to 70, the slaughter of Jerusalem in the nation. Jeremiah 31.15 is one of Matthew's most interesting and elusive Old Testament quotations. It's difficult. There's something very deep and rich within it that is somewhat difficult to ascertain with certainty. But the main points of the passage, the main point is obvious and highly important. So, difficult passage, very fascinating, very important. Matthew, again, is 
rendering, uh, reminding his readers of how Jesus is the fulfillment and climax of the sacred scriptures. Everything in the Old Testament points us to Jesus. And if you're not totally blind, spiritually blind, it's obvious. The sacrifices, the prophecies, the typology, we find it throughout. Going all the way, even back in Genesis, what is it, Genesis 3.15? When God told Adam and Eve, like he was speaking to Eve, how Jesus is going to uh, have his—he's going to crush the head of the serpent. He, his heel's going to be damaged, but he's going to crush the head of the serpent. All the way back in the early chapters of Genesis, Christ is the the, the red thread that goes throughout the whole Bible, the, the whole Old Testament. He's this, the 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 center, the axis around which the whole scriptures rotate. Some regard what occurred in Jeremiah's day as a typological model for the tragic events that occurred in Bethlehem and the surrounding areas in 4 BC, as we noted. How many children and babies were murdered, we are not told. The numbers range from as low as 20, uh, for example, Al Alfred Eidersheim's work, and he bases this low figure on the fact that at that time Bethlehem was a small village and the surrounding areas were sparsely populated to several thousands. Post-apostolic and medieval scholars had a tendency to greatly inflate the numbers. Okay, one, uh, writers would speak of 14,000 killed. Now, if Bethlehem had a population of around 800 people, now, women who don't have birth control, who are very fertile, um, who breastfeed, which that's all they did back then, uh, they can crank out a baby about once every two years, at the most. Maybe a little less than two years in rare cases. So if you take that into account and you figure Bethlehem had a population of, at the most, let's say 800 people, the number of babies killed would be less than 100 in Bethlehem. In any case, Herod's act was bar uh, barbaric and exceptionally evil. Now, the degree of the women's mourning helps us understand the shocking, heinous nature of the state's actions. It is lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. The mothers refuse to be comforted because their little children are no more. They're dead. Nothing can bring them back. There's nothing more final than death. Somebody gets in a car wreck and they have to amputate their legs. Well, they're alive. Somebody gets wounded in war, but they come back and they're in the hospital for two years. But they're alive. Death, they're gone. Forever. Now, if you're a Christian... You can see them in heaven. But on earth, they're gone. They hardened themselves in their grief. They were inconsolable. Because of man's sin and the fall, murder and injustice brings great sorrow to the oppressed. And there's a sense in which these are the first martyrs for the faith. Satan used Herod to strike at Christ, and many infants were slaughtered in the process. This, beloved, is what the world thinks of Jesus. You notice Muslims have no problem fitting in with the Democratic Party. You notice that there's nothing more hated in the public schools. There's nothing more hated in our civil government than biblical Christianity, that is Bible-believing Christians, not liberals, who are not Christians at all, homosexual ministers and lesbian ministers, and uh, in, the, in the, the big liberal Protestant denominations, it's they wink at adultery. They wink at homosexuality. They don't care about sexual immorality and fornication. They don't care about any of these things. 
they're a bunch of satanic statists. They're a bunch. They're no better than communists. They're satanic to the core. Sin make men evil and foolish. Herod was so blind to biblical theology that he believed he could kill the Messiah. Now, he should have inferred that somehow the Magi had, had been warned and fled. That would have been discernible. And that God would not allow the Christ to be uh, touched by evil men until the time came for the crucifixion, when he was going to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. It just shows that men without Christ, who are e obviously evil, are spiritually blind. Did he really think God was going to let him kill the Messiah? Did he really think that? What an idiot. For Matthew's account, which is that Herod killed all the males two years old and under, based on when the star first appeared, uh, uh, is based on when the star first appeared to Ma the Magi, and the fact that the Holy Family were now living in a house. So many scholars, I would say the majority of scholars, believe that Jesus was around two years old at this time. And that would place Jesus' birth in late, you know, 6 or 5 AD. Remember how the Jews counted years. Could be part of a year and part of another year. It didn't have to be two full years. <clears throat> Those who disagree usually do so based on the human tradition surrounding Christmas. Now, given Luke's account, 239, where the Holy Family uh, returns to Nazareth after the Mary's purification and Jesus' dedication, and the Magi's preparations and long journey from the east, probably Persia or Babylon, which is a very long journey. You have to understand, people didn't travel straight from Persia or Babylon right over through the desert. They went way up on the Fertile Crescent. They had to follow the water. They had to go way, way up and come way, way down. That's how they traveled. That's why you see armies coming out of the north all the time. They could, they, you, you're not going to take 100,000 men through a desert with no water. You'd run out of water. So those who disagree do so based on human traditions. The defense of the Christ Christmas tradition is almost certainly false. The only plausible argument that one could make is that perhaps the star appeared a year or six months before and that Herod added a year onto the date just to make sure that the Christ child was killed. Okay, and the one who makes this huge defense uh, for not saying it's two years is, is uh, William Hendrickson, who's got this big defense of Christmas. Now he says, oh yeah, this, I'm not defending Christmas, but then he goes on to defend Christmas for over a page, you know, making it possible. Such of you, however, is an argument from silence and is pure speculation. Even if just Jesus was no longer a newborn baby, uh, even if true that Jesus was no longer a newborn baby and the Holy Family was no longer living in Bethlehem. Luke makes that perfectly clear. And we'll stop. That's a good place to stop. I have a little bit more application. I wanted to talk about this and statism and abortion a little bit. And then, then uh, we're going to finish that up. There's quite a bit to do. And then we'll get to Jesus at 12 years of age in the temple, Lord willing. But what an amazing section of scripture. There is no neutrality, people. I mean, the civil government, this idea that we can be neutral and you send your kids to public schools and they're not going to be anti-Christ, they're not going to be anti-religious, they're not going to teach against the Bible. That's just absolute foolishness. Now, when our country was strongly influenced by the Christian world and life view, 
and uh, the people that were teaching in public schools in, let's say, 1850 uh, were all professing Christians and went to church, and they started the day with a prayer uh, to to God through Jesus Christ every day. Uh, yeah, you're you're not going to have to worry about your kids being taught that uh, sodomy and fisting is a wonderful, virtuous thing. But that's long past. The mainline denominations have all gone apostate. Evangelicalism is really bad because they reject God's law, so they have no ethical foundation other than vagueness. Uh, so what we have today is a natural outgrowth of, of the church's acceptance of the Constitution and this idea of religious neutrality. They could have formed a Constitution. I, I realize that you know reform people were probably in the minority in the old days. But they could have formed a constitution which explicitly recognized Jesus Christ as king, explicitly recognized the authority of the word of God, and condemned all non-Christian religions and said, uh, obviously, we don't believe in persecution. If you're, if you're, if you're a, a Jew or a Mohammedan or, or whatever, you can live in our country. You just can't propagate your faith and you can't have public worship and you can't have idols. But you can't hold office. You can't vote. Our constitution is a Christian constitution. We have a covenant with Jesus Christ and we obey the word of God. That could have been done. Uh, people just assume that if you, don't, if you do that, there's going to be persecution. No. The Bible, there were lots of pagans living in Israel. They just couldn't do it publicly. You don't have to believe. You can have your business. You could do fine. But the moment you start advocating heresy and the moment you start advoca publicly advocating idolatry and paganism, uh, then the state obviously has to deal with that. But Christians have, you know, they bought into this stupid myth of neutrality and now we're paying the price it took a long time for the it get, to get worked out but it, we're paying the price for that it's rather if you if you don't believe that neutrality is a myth uh now you have no excuse our state is satanic to the core that that bill in florida they don't want to teach kindergartners through third grade about sex and homosexuality and transgenderism and that's condemned as being evil by the Democrats. How satanic and foolish. Kids that age don't think about those things. They don't. But anyway, we'll stop there. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing section of Scripture. We thank you. How your Holy, the Holy Spirit guided Matthew to write perfection, absolute truth for our benefit. We thank you that Matthew has shown us how rich the typology of the Old Testament really is and how rich the prophecies are in their fulfillment in your dear son, Jesus Christ. Strengthen our faith by this, Lord. Help us to understand how the state needs to bow the knee to Jesus Christ and how we need to stop accepting neutrality. Help us, Lord. We have to be at peace with our neighbors as much as possible, even atheists and sodomites. However, we don't need to advocate it as a policy. So help us be faithful, Lord, and keep your covenant. In Jesus' name, amen.